or how do I say no to A, B, or C without feeling guilty? And that's a, a really tall order, yeah. especially as someone who's trying to to unlearn some of that guilt reaction. And so the the question would actually be, how do I choose uh, what I want to choose and with with uh, withstand that guilt? And so I would uh, look for small ways, small things that make me feel guilty that I know uh, I need to choose for myself, right? So not going to a backyard barbecue and I would rather just take a nap. This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 267 with guest BK Chan. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. As always, I am so glad that you're here. I have a funny story for you this morning that that really just happened yesterday. Okay. So I, as I mentioned last week, I think I told you about the challenge that I had been handed about going to an open mic night somewhere here in the city I live in and reading my poem, Resignation, which I'm terrified to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, having having been handed this challenge and knowing that this is the next level for me, this is something that's really scary and I'm going to do it. And I've been looking for different places to go. I found one place, but it was it's like on a weeknight and it's kind of late and I'm like, oh, I wonder if there's other options. So I found two other options and I was looking at one of them and this particular place was called Northwest what is it called? Like Northwest Open Mic, not Northwest Kim Kardashian's Child. Northwest is uh, an area of town that they call here. There's like lots of things called Northwest out here in Greensboro. So I didn't really think much of it. Northwest Open Mic, and they have a Facebook page, like 55 likes on it. And I'm like, well, maybe this is just like a smaller venue type of thing. So I didn't see a, I saw some events, some open mic events that had already passed. And so I emailed the Facebook page and said, Hey, I'm interested in coming to one of your open mic nights. When do you have a event coming up? And then I kind of forgot about it that I had emailed them. So I get an email from them yesterday and the person says, hi, Andrea. Yes, we have our next event is coming up on February 22nd. And it's uh, in the media center at Northwest. And I was like, what at Northwest? Oh my God, you guys. And then I took a closer look at the pictures that they had from past events. And I'm looking closely. I'm like, these people are awfully young. It's at the high school. Northwest High School <laughs> is not far from me and is the high school that my children will eventually go to. Oh my God. I don't know if he looked at my profile and he was like, does she, she must be thinking of this for her children or someone that she knows. I don't know. Maybe it's open to the public, but I laughed so hard. I was messaging my friend Amy and I'm like, oh my God, what if I went and didn't know that it was for these high school? And it's, it's not during school hours. It's, I can't even remember what time he said, but it's, it's like in the afternoon or the evening or something. It must be some kind of like extracurricular thing for the drama club or poetry club or something like that. What if I showed up and I was like, I'm here to read your poem. And the kids are like, whose mom is that? (laughs) Oh my God. They're like, Jeff, your mom's here to pick you up. And I'm like, no, I'm here to read my poem about my trauma. About what happened to me in 1991, way before you were born, back in the old days. Oh my God, that was so embarrassing. (laughs) Or worse, what if I went and like one of my friend's kids is there? (laughs) Because I have some friends whose children go to, and funny enough, my friend, I have one friend and her son's name is Ryan and he's a senior at Northwest High School. Wonder if that's him. (laughs) He's like, Mrs. Owen, (laughs) is this you? 
Will you tell my mom to come pick me up? <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know if you guys think that's funny. I got such a kick out of it. Oh, this is... This must be my initiation into the next level of my own vulnerability and sharing my my art and all of those great things. Holy shit. Okay, I am, you know, speaking of vulnerability, we are talking today about consent and very vulnerable things today with my guest today, Karen BK Chan. I'm excited for you to hear this conversation. Before I jump in, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. But before I do that, I wanted to remind you that I'm accepting applications for Mentorship Masterclass, which starts in March. We already have a handful of amazing, brave, courageous women who have signed up to join us. And this particular program, it's my deepest work, y'all. It is the most transformational that I run and it's the steps of shame resilience. It's how to have better coping mechanisms when you're used to doing things, If when you're used to coping with your life with things like numbing out, perfectionism, control, overachieving, isolating, hiding out, you know, all of those things that you read about in How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. This is really the next step for that. So if you love the book, if you love the podcast and you are really ready to commit, I mean, it's really about maybe one hour a week that you would need to commit to listening to the audios, showing up for the calls when you can, participating in the Facebook group, coming up with your questions, sharing with me. There's a private session with me. We get to hang out and I support you any way that you need to. And there's an optional workshop retreat here at my house that I am pumped about. Very, very, very excited about that. So head on over to yourkickasslife.com slash mentorship and the application goes straight to me and then we will figure it out from there. All right, let me tell you a little bit about my guest today. Karen B.K. Chan is an award-winning sex and emotional literacy educator in Toronto, Canada, with 20-plus years of experience. Trained in creative facilitation, productive thinking, and nonviolent communication, B.K.'s favorite ways to learn and teach are through stories, metaphors, diagrams, and things that make people laugh. So without further ado, here is B.K. Karen, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. I have had you on my list for such a long time to have you on my podcast. I can't even remember who it was that told me about it. I usually am good at remembering, but I was so enthralled with your website and read everything and went on YouTube and watched your videos. And there's several different topics I want to jump into. But one of the things we talk about on a fairly regular basis over here is emotional intelligence. Like I use, I like to say, you know, before I started my personal development journey, I was emotionally illiterate. I did mm-hmm. everything I could to avoid feeling my feelings mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and got help for a lot of different addictions. And the last one being from alcohol seven years ago. And I feel like that's what, when really things opened up, but can you tell us what are some steps someone can take towards learning to better deal with their emotions? Beautiful question. And and thanks for sharing that, um, that starting point for yourself. I uh, can relate. I, I always say that I do this work, not because I'm talented or naturally good at it. It's actually my own healing journey. And it's all the things that I needed to know and did not um, have enough knowledge about. That's why I, I study it. Uh, so emotional intelligence, something that I came to know also later in life than I wished, um, and but also at the very right time, uh, is thinking of emotions as a literacy, right? As something that um, we can learn, we can acquire like an alphabet. Mm-hmm. And then as we get better and better at it, uh, we can spell, we can make words. Um, and then as we get better and better at it, we become, you know, funny. We, you know, we can manage our emo- emotions in creative ways. And then we also can understand and write poetry, for example, um, with our emotions. So uh, I think an uh, entry point to to emotional intelligence for a lot of people is um, hoping that they would have an easier time with emotions and not feeling so out of control and or and or controlled by emotion. Um, I relate to what you said about not feeling uh, my feelings, um, and that was my own way of also f- uh, feeling quite uh, a loss of control because if I were to feel anything, it would become overwhelming, and so therefore the only um, resort I had was to not feel anything. Mm -hmm. Um, so the entry point, I, I 
do believe it's about management and about having an easier relationship. And then what it develops into is that it's not even just something I need to manage, but something that I can thrive with um, my emotions. They're my friends. They're my friends. <laughs> yes. They're everybody. trusty assistants, in fact. They're yeah. trusty assistants. Oh, I love that. I've never heard that perspective. And I absolutely adore that perspective. I, you know, one thing that changed my life, and I'm, I like that you said that too, because for me, it very much was all or nothing. Either like I dove in head first and felt completely yeah. swallowed up by them, which was yeah. scary, or I completely shut them out. And got really good at doing both of those things. And, you know, it was interesting when my dad, I lost my dad in 2016 and it was the first person I'd ever lost that I was close to. And I noticed that I was still able to shut them out. Like I felt confident mm-hmm. that I could feel them, but I was very much, I, I went immediately into over-functioning, which I think there's always mm-hmm. like one family member that does that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was yeah. at the funeral and <laughs> My stepmother actually made a comment about it. And she said, you're handling this really well. And I said, and I paused and I looked at her and I said, well, I think it's come in handy coming from a family that (laughs) learned how to do this. Right. (laughs) But yeah. And then I was able to, to do that. And I love how you said that when you start to be able to navigate your feelings, you can do things like write poetry. I never put those two together, but that very much was the case for me personally. Can you say more about Mm -hmm. that? I just think of it as, um, you know, just playing on the theme of literacy and um, the beauty of language is not, you know, only trying to get around a city that you don't know, right? It really is about then falling in love with a language and um, being able to, you know, the, 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 what, what pains me the most with languages that I only speak a little bit of is A, I'm not funny when I'm speaking them and, and I'm always trying to convey to, to the native speakers of that language, you know, for example, like Spanish, but I'm actually much funnier in English. Mm -hmm. Um, you just have to trust me. And then around the poetry is, is that it feels like a real loss when I don't speak a language well enough to really get beauty and, and poetry, um, that's written in that language. So translated to emotions, I think it would mean having such, um, a curiosity and an openness to, uh, interpretations, to the change, to nuances of feelings of what they mean. And, um, how, uh, we actually influence them and they influence us. And, uh, so that kind of openness is, is the same kind of openness that poetry requires. You know, it requires dances of your imagination of, of, of meaning and of, you know, a kind of looseness, right? So, um, I think those are for me quite related in terms of how I relate to poetry and how I relate to, to, um, emotions or Mm. trying to. Yeah. I love that. I, I realized personally to kind of tack on to what you just said is that I was easy. I was easier for me to navigate the feelings of grief if mm-hmm. I wrote about it. And I think that for some people they get stuck in like, what does poetry look like? Well, mm-hmm. it's, you know, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. open to your interpretation. And so I wrote poetry that looking, you know, if someone would have seen that out of context, they would have been like, this is really dark, (laughs) but it's where I was. And and for me, just writing in general has been a way to navigate my feelings and emotions because trying to make sense of them sometimes can be overwhelming, especially for someone who's new to actually walking into your emotions. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how you said that too. It makes me think of how poetry is uh, knowing the rules and then choosing creatively to sometimes break them and to sometimes make new rules and sometimes abide by them. Right. And so for me, a high level of emotion, emotional intelligence, a high level of, of that kind of literacy means that we know the rules and sometimes we use them to discern, um, to create. And other times we, we do away with them. You know, uh, what you said about your stepmother saying that you were hand grief and and the loss really well. It's interesting how that is um, a vocabulary that's in um, common society, right? So if you're holding it together, you're not showing that you're Mm -hmm. affected by something that's terrible, that's happening to you, that is somehow seen as doing it really well. Right. Um, and I think that that is almost like a rule um, that 
uh, highly intelligent people emotionally would break. Mm-hmm. You know, handling it really well when something devastating happens is to be devastated. And of course, you could consciously choose to be uh, functional so that you could do all the functions and at the same time not um, believe that that's all of it. I think that's what intelligence might look like. Mm-hmm. Right. And culturally, that's what we look, that's what the meaning of, of dealing with it well means. Because she was crying and kind of like going on and on in the passenger seat yeah. next to me. And so in comparison to her, that's, it's interesting, you know, that's how she looked at it, doing it well. And, and to me now that I have worked on my emotions and managing them in a different way than I used to, dealing with it well is yeah. actually sitting down and writing dark poetry and crying. Yeah, yeah. Very different. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would totally echo with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what are we have an audience full of high achievers, you know, women mm-hmm. who are efficient and productive. And so what mm-hmm. are what are some ways? Because I know you talk about this, about dealing with your emotions as it relates to stress and burnout and productivity. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because that is um, for for women in in that sort of echelon of life. Often we're trained out of our emotions because they they've been in the way. Um, and in many professions and in many realms of life um, that take on a more masculinist, shall we say, like the qualities that have traditionally be seen as good um, in men in a, a fundamentally sexist society, when women can be more like men, we um, get more credit. You know, so if we speak more like men in terms of, you know, having our voices go down at the end, as opposed to say our voices go up at the end, um, we're seen as more credible. That's just a a small uh, example. So because of that kind of dynamic, some of the emotional practices of high achieving women have also had to uh, imitate the ones that we expect of men, which is to not express emotion, to keep it together. And sometimes those expectations are even higher for women because we're already seen somewhat as um, irrational, overly sensitive beings who, you know, operate too much by heart and not enough by brain. Mm-hmm. You know, all these assumptions are not true, first of all, um, but they do serve to to add extra pressure um, so the training and uh, plus the the um, many of the expectations can create that that kind of condition. And so what I see in my clients who are um, who have a lot of responsibility, who are high achieving, who are um, you know manage many different things in work and life, um, they end up feeling like they don't have time um, to to four emotions. They're, they're just in the way. And so what's really helpful is actually to begin to feel, um, permitted to be fully human. And I do this, uh, similarly with, uh, many male clients, uh, for, for male clients, it's often the permission has just never been there. It's not a return to a kind of permission. It's, um, it's a newly acquired permission. Um, and also for many people, it, it helps to know that the most, uh, highly achieving, um, executives, for example, have the highest emotional intelligence. So, um, holding back on emotion often will get you to a certain, um, aspect, a certain level of achievement. And then beyond that, it actually requires, um, many of the skills of emotional intelligence, including identifying exactly how you are feeling and what you're needing so that you don't end up, you know, passive aggressively getting what you want and then, you know, losing friends and making enemies in, in, in the, in the meantime, um, and, or having empathy so that you can see, um, what a client or an employee or a fellow colleague is feeling, feeling and needing so that you can anticipate that. And that strangely enough, and, or maybe quite, um, intuitively is exactly where innovation comes from, right? So sometimes, um, in certain industries where innovation is so important, um, Step sort of level one of innovation is to um, cater to what clients are asking for, customers are asking for. Mm -hmm. And that requires the customer or the client to actually be able to identify what they are needing. But uh, in many customers and and client groups, they actually may not know what's available or what's possible. And so if we are able to anticipate using empathy 
what the next innovation could bring so that it will, you know, better our clients and customers' lives, then um, the innovation is ahead of actually what customers might even ask for. And so it has a wide um, application, everything from, you know, fighting less with your spouse to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the next big innovation in a product. Well, it sounds like there's some parallels to when you were talking about sort of like this manager-employee relationship to romantic relationships as well, or even friendships, like just being innovative in your personal relationships as well. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and a, a pretty practical application would be the the giving of bad news, right? So mm-hmm. often people uh, in positions of power or decision-making positions have to um, give bad news, mm-hmm. Um be that, you know, a doctor to a patient or a manager to an employee. Um, and critical feedback, for example, for many people feels like bad news. And it is a, a difficult skill to give bad news um, for people who've received diagnoses that were wishy-washy because their doctors were nervous about giving that bad news. It actually oh, ends up being worse mm-hmm. um, because you're figuring out, you know, what exactly is happening, what are my chances of, you know, success with this surgery or whatever. And the same with breakups, right? So if somebody's needing space and they're not clear, then it can leave the other person feeling even worse, second-guessing. Um, and so emotional intelligence allow us to notice how nervous or how much we want to avoid giving that bad news. Yeah. It allows us to actually say what exactly the bad news is. And it also allows for something to coexist that often in um, regular life is said to not coexist, which is kindness and clarity. Yes. So I can be right clear and firm and have good boundaries and also still have your wellness in mind while possibly, you know, breaking your heart at the same time. So emotional intelligence allows for those, all those things to coexist. Yeah. And you're honoring who you are as well. I got excited there for a second because that's the exact same thing Mm -hmm. that I say is because I think for, for many people, we think that setting boundaries or telling someone the truth has to always be really painful. Or if we're setting a boundary, it has to be aggressive. And yeah. that's not true. Like you can still be kind and clear and mm-hmm. and really be true to yourself and not mm-hmm. be responsible for that, how it lands for that other person. And mm-hmm. just knowing that they're whole human beings and it's up to them to, to figure it out on their own. But as long as you're yeah. saying what you need to say with kindness and clarity, and sometimes the truth hurts, then, yeah. then that's all you can do. It's all you have control over. Yeah. And, you know, especially for women, we're, the added pressure is so many of us were raised with, you know, the very erroneous idea of don't hurt people's feelings, right? right? That's a very blunt... It's our uh, job. Yeah, and an an inaccurate way of putting it, you know, don't hurt people's feelings on purpose, but um, people's feelings are often hurt, and hurt feelings are not the end of the world. They're not. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they're certainly not. I, yeah. So I'm I'm really curious now, hearing you talk for a little while. How did you come to this work? Did something happen in your life, or were you just curious about it? Where did Mm. how did that all start for you? For me, it's really. the crossroads of two different paths. One is in my personal life. Um, I really echo with you uh, about how I came to emotions and just coping with all the different hardships in my own life through a kind of severe withdrawal and avoidance. Um, And so I was really good at not feeling anything. And it really worked for me for a long time until it didn't. And I could see that many relationships um, were being harmed um, and that I was also not making real and deep connections with people. Um, And so I felt deeply lonely, which made uh, it necessary to even withdraw further. And I was also intermittently exploding. so I would hold and contain and hold for a while. Um, and then when I could not hold any more the loneliness and the anger, I would explode mm-hmm. at someone. And usually, um, well, it's never a good thing. <laughs> it doesn't matter who I pick. <laughs> so that was one thing, really realizing that I had to make some changes um, in my life. And the other was um, my grandmother dying. My grandmother um, was very, very close to me. And I watched her 
pass away and our whole family watched her pass away and the the uh tradition in my in my extended family is if somebody is sick or dying we uh don't talk about it mm-hmm. and we also lie to them so my grandmother was uh, terminally ill this was about um 20 years ago and um there were 30 or 40 relatives relatives all in on this hoax. We would visit her at hospital and, and talk about how she was going to leave in a few days and she should keep her strength up so that, you know, we can go out and have a lot of food and so forth. So the truth is, I think she knew that she was uh, dying, uh, but none of us were able or willing to talk about it. And it added actually to her fear and her pain. And so I was reading um, this book at the time that uh, my boss at the time gave me uh, Death and Dying um, by Elizabeth uh, Kubler-Ross, mm-hmm. and one of my favorite books. And it introduced this idea to me that I had never thought of um, in my whole life until that point. This idea that um, it is okay to say hard things to each other, and in mm-hmm. fact, especially for the dying, um, it can help because they have a lot of fears, and it's that much scarier to to face them alone. Um, and so I had a conversation with my grandmother, and I just asked her if she was scared, and she was, and her demeanor changed, um, and we became connected in in such a deep way. Um, she passed shortly after that, um, and it really changed my life in terms of what I thought um, is is doing somebody um, a favor or being good to them or being loving to them, um, as, uh, going to some scary places together with them, as opposed to, um, not going there and pretending they're not happening. Mm-hmm. So those things happening together really brought me to a place of thinking these are skills I don't have and I have to get mm-hmm. them. Yeah. There's this, I saw this, I mean, it's probably kind of, you know, a little bit cliche, but I saw this meme on Instagram <laughs> <laughs> that said, um, pain travels through families until someone's ready yeah. to feel it. Yeah. And it hit me because I, you know, similar grew up in a family where we did not talk about hard things. And, and it's really interesting because I don't know if this is the case for you, but my mom now, she sees me being, you know, talking about all these hard things and has read my books and she's kind of slowly dipping her toe in and, and having, trying to have harder conversations with me. And it's, it's still like, I'll be honest, it's still, I think when you are so used to family roles, Mm -hmm. that's one of my hardest relationships to navigate with her. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, you are this person. I'm not right. using any other way, but it's yeah. it's beautiful to watch her trying to come into her own with her own emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. and and it's also at the same time difficult for me because I will always be her daughter, no matter how mm-hmm. old I get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can really relate to that, and it's it's easy when relatively easy when it's you know my work, right? Uh, but once I'm home, um, it's very very hard. And I'd say that to my clients and people in the audience too, it's your family, I think is some of the um, most challenging, but most important work that you'll ever do when it comes to, mm-hmm. you know, emotional intelligence and just communi- healthy communication, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you for telling that story. It was really beautiful. Mm. Thanks for listening. Yeah. I, I want to switch gears here for a minute and talk about unconscious bias. And so for mm-hmm. those of you listening, I'm assuming that the majority, cause you know that I, you know, this isn't a brand new conversation. The majority of you all know what that is. So if you don't please pause and Google it. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've liked to, I'd like to kind of dig a little bit deeper and just really ask you the sort of broad and generalized question is how can we work on decreasing the unconscious biases that we have in our lives? Hmm. Um, I think the first step really is in knowing that they may exist and that their job, that the definition of them is to be unconscious. Um, And so for me, and related back to emotional intelligence, it has a lot to do with um, who I think I am. If I think I am someone who is a very, very good person and I'm very invested in being a good person, mm-hmm. it's actually that much harder for me to recognize that I have biases. Yeah. And so it's connected to 
you know, accepting ourselves uh, wholly and uh, including all the, the parts that may be biased. Um, and one entry point to that is is to simply know that we're swimming in uh, a system, in multiple systems that rely on these biases. So they're there not because um, of personal weakness. They're there because that's how social order functions. Um, and so um, we, we can manage them. We can um, surface them. Them into the conscious, but uh, that cannot happen unless we are willing to accept that we might be people who have them. Mm-hmm. So that would be step one. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to pause you for a moment because I think I know this is a lot of the work that you do, and I appreciate you kind of telling us the the steps. One of the things that I think was so eye opening for me, you know, I had someone tell me that they were bothered by the word whiteness, and I mm-hmm. said, "Well, you're bothered by the word <laughs> because it's." I, what was really eye-opening for me a while back, I read the book, um, white privilege, why it's so hard for white people to talk about race. And Mm. what the author explains is that, and this was something that was unconscious for me is that we grow up thinking that to talk about race Mm -hmm. is just, you know, using race as an example, or even, you know, people with different sizes of bodies to talk about Mm -hmm. fat people is Mm -hmm. bad. Like you mm-hmm. just like the less you talk about it, the more you kind of keep it a secret, then mm-hmm. you are a good person. And mm-hmm. then it's not actually, you're not a bad person. If you're uncovering your, unco- you have to, in order to yeah. be a decent human being to do this work. And so that's one thing that I just kind of want to get out of the way for anybody who's kind of new to this conversation is that you can still, you can, it, this, it's part of doing the work. Wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And that discomfort that you're talking about, it's, it's one of my, you know, I, I think of it as a, as a trainer, the most uh, important and delicious moments. And if we, in that moment of discomfort of, of encountering, you know, let's say a word like whiteness or a word like fat, mm-hmm. um, or any words that actually bring up a, an emotional reaction, if we can just stay there together for a moment in, in a very gentle and kind way, there are so many, um, uh, movements that can happen. Uh, but often it is that discomfort, uh, that the brain says, therefore something is wrong. And then this um, conversation gets shut down. Yeah. And that sometimes we, we even have, you know, reactions to, to that kind of discomfort that says, not only should I not talk about it, but all of us should stop talking about it. Mm-hmm. 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 Yes. Okay. So step one, <laughs> you explained, thank you. So what is, what is the next step after that? The next step is uh, to expect that discomfort, right? To expect um, that, you know, what people call the work or surfacing unconscious biases and so forth uh, does not feel like a a holy process, does not feel like a beautiful process. Often, if you're surfacing um, something that, uh, for example, you have privilege in, the the teaching that I often share is that privilege feels like nothing, right? It doesn't feel like privilege. It doesn't feel like, you know, I have my life handed to me on a silver platter. It feels like normal. It feels feels like like zero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the only time I'm noticing, I'm going to be able to notice privilege is when it's taken from me. Um, And so a lot of these uh, um, processes that move a society towards justice, right? So um, if we want uh, equity between genders, for example, in the workplace, when that kind of work happens, often men feel like something unfair is happening to them. Um, When women are gaining uh, what men have already uh, have um, access to, often it feels like a loss um, to the men. And so Privilege and identifying it and realizing that I have it can both feel painful, as in you're taking something from me, and it can often feel guilty. It can make us mm-hmm. feel really bad. Um, I can't believe I'm complicit to the system, um, and to move from the system feels so uncomfortable. You know, so I'm damned if I do, and I da- I'm damned if I don't. Those can all be painful moments, and I think the key there is just to not panic. That pain is is temporary. That pain is um, bearable, and that pain subsides if we can be honest about it. And that pain also changes as we feel like um, there are more and more things we can actually do. Versus, I'm helpless and I'm in despair, and this whole thing is hopeless. Yes. So that would be step two. I'm sure there's many, many more. 
<laughs> yeah, those are some of the openers. Those um, are the openers. But I do think the road gets easier. I really like to take an approach that gives people confidence uh, in the work as opposed to make them, you know, sometimes when we do unconscious bias work, I have seen um, people as they uncover their unconscious biases become less and less confident in themselves, right? They're just questioning everything they know and everything mm-hmm. they think and everything they feel and they don't want to say anything or else it'll, you know, offend somebody. I went through that phase. I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a very that's a common... Yeah. And, and it's not the place that I wish for anyone to be in and it's not helpful. So I'd like to make that place as small as possible. And we don't have to be there in order to get to other places. Yeah. I, I have been in that place and it's, it's, it's not helpful at all. I realized very quickly. And I think the way I describe it for people who are in that place where they're uncomfortable with words like whiteness and, and, and privilege and things is, I have had to create a bit of a stamina for having the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think it might be, um, I might have a little bit of a, a privilege in that I work in personal development. So I'm used to having hard yeah. conversations. I'm, yeah. I'm used to talking about things like shame and, and being present yeah. for people's stories and, and being able to navigate that with myself and with others. And so I think that, you know, as I walked through, as I continue to walk through that work, it was deeply uncomfortable at first and I went through all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm at a place where like, yes, I can have this conversation. Yes, I can be called in about things that I have said or, or I'm doing, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and, um, and be okay with it and know that like, I'm still a good person, even though Mm -hmm. I fucked up and said Mm -hmm. the wrong thing or still learning, still a student in all of this. And so I appreciate you giving us some insight on that. I know it's, it's much of the work that, that you do. And I want to switch gears one more time over into Mm -hmm. sexuality and intimacy Mm -hmm. and, and more specifically about sexual consent and for just a little bit of background, I had, I have a series on my podcast that I call, um, shit that matter or talking about shit that matters with un- conversations about shit that matters with unqualified people where basically I get one of my <laughs> friends on and it's not yeah. an expert interview. It's really just myself and her friend as we both navigate something that's going on. And I had a two part series with one of my dear friends about sexual trauma, date rape and, and consent. And I mm-hmm. can pop those links in the show notes for, for everybody listening. And so my question for you is what are some social and emotional barriers to sexual or to, to even just sexual consent and how can one overcome them? There, the obvious barriers, you know, it's hard to do. It's not what we're used to doing. Um, sometimes it's, you know, embarrassing to talk about sex without just doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those aside, I think emotionally, it's hard to be honest about how attraction often is engineered in this time, right? So um, I've had many men who have um, tried to take up this consent practice and then have had um, feedback from their partners, often female partners, who say, don't do that. That turns me off. Mm -hmm. You know, don't ask me permission. You know, I don't want you to, to ask for permission. I want you to know what you're doing. I need all those things to Why be attracted to you as off? a man. Is, is it because women just aren't used to that or was it something else? I think there's something in our cultural script right now about what kind of masculinity is sexy. Oh, sure. mm-hmm. So there becomes a very narrow um, band of a walkable space, right? So you, where between there, uh, where there's a, a abuse, mm-hmm. um, and non-consent versus, um, you're losing so much of your masculinity that I don't like you. Yeah. So that's one of the many, uh, barriers that's actually has to do with our sexual attractions, right? Um, and sexual attraction is and desire is is engineerable. Um, but in this moment, uh, many people are used to that kind of um, dynamic. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that dynamic. It just creates a very difficult terrain to then practice how we understand consent right now. So that's one of the pieces. Another piece is um, the, I think of the fractionalizing or cutting into pieces, um, sexual experience, right? So a lot of times the, the tools that are offered in, uh, current consent, um, toolkits, um, include, you know, is it okay if, would you like, if I do this to you, what would you like to do? How do I pleasure you? And so forth. And so all those ways are talking about sex in, in activity, 
mm-hmm. in you know units of activity, um, which is how often porn is created. Right, porn is often listed by activity or by the people doing the activity. Um, and it's not how it's not the only way sexual experience can happen. And actually, um, optimal sexual experience, um, Peggy Kleinplatz did quite a bit of work on this, uh, is not activity based. It's not first we do this, then we do that, then we flip over and do this final thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, a conversation, right? It's it's is composed as the people involved proceed. And so you may not always know what you're about to do because it's not an activity necessarily. And it's not something you have in mind exactly what to do. And so the consent, um, format that is, may I do a, then do B, would you like C doesn't work Mm -hmm. for that kind of sexual experience. Um, that kind of sexual experience is much more like, um, what I talk about in the video, it's improvised, right? And so in improvisation, you're just watching. You're not necessarily, if if you're musically improvising, for example, you don't pause the whole music making to say, could I play my saxophone in this way now? You kind of begin it and see the person's reaction and then you change. Isn't that kind Um, of how jazz is? (laughs) Exactly. And so, Lots of different things happening. (laughs) We have a tool, you know, consent, Asking for consent is one of the tools, but it cannot be our whole set of tools. So those are some sort of um, issues of the day, I think, in consent. Huh. That make so it a little more difficult. Yeah. Um, that's what, are, really, what are you thinking about? Well, and it's just as I, I have two small children and my son is 11 and my daughter's nine. So we, you know, I know that it's coming with my son yeah. soon. And so I'm going to have to learn how to navigate this as a parent. And I know that there's lots of resources out there. So I'm very interested in people like you who do this for a living. And also in 2019, the conversation is very different than Mm -hmm. when I was, you know, coming into my own sexuality, like in the nineties where it was like, just how do I get this bodysuit off? Because (laughs) (laughs) it's very different. And so I come at it. It's, it's been interesting on a personal level given that I, I'm still, as this is all coming out and especially of the last couple of years, seeing everything that's coming out with the Me Too movement and everything from that, from the, to the Kavanaugh hearings and, and really seeing emotional things come up for me and having to navigate my own trauma and deal with things. And at the same time, look at, oh, I have some hangups around sex (laughs) and Mm -hmm. navigating that on a personal level and then walking into helping my children in a different generation navigate this is the, I feel like it's the mother load, Karen, like I'll be honest. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Oh man. So yeah. And just, and really recently coming to terms with realizing how many sexual encounters I've had that have been coerced consent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's really what the conversation I had a little bit with my friend Kate um, and that was, and just so many revelations as a 43 year old woman, (laughs) I have a lot of experience with sex, but it's still like, Oh damn, that's, I still have a lot of work to do around there. And I think, I feel like that a lot of my listeners are in, in a similar boat. Yeah. And, and that's part of the script that's been part of the sexual script, you know, um, that, you know, we, we acquiesce at some point or it's easier to get it over with at this point. Um, mm-hmm. I have had that very thought before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I wrote, a, an article a few years ago, just reacting to, um, actually Margaret Cho, um, in one of her tweets saying, you know, never again, uh, do I want to make that decision to just, you know, get something over with. I will only have sex that I actually want, um, and only have sex that, uh, is pleasurable to me. Um, and I, I reacted to that because I want it to be part of my, my options. You know, I, I do that in many realms where I just get something over with, be that a conversation, um, you know, with, uh, you know, a grad student who wants to, to get something done. And I am really not in the mood to have that conversation, but the outcome is something I want, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, this person getting something they want and it's not too much of a a burden on me. I will do it. It's not uh, something I desire. It's something I'm willing to do. Right. And so, 
in this cascade of the Me Too movement, I do think sometimes the pendulum is swinging really, really far to the other side where the the goal of personal consent practice becomes, I will never do anything sexual unless I have desire, I have pleasure, I have arousal, and therefore I will give consent. When, you know, um, I'd like a little bit more control over my own sexual life than that. I would like to be able to say, I'd like to just get this over with and I don't want to talk about it. But mm-hmm. when it's the only option, that's not cool. But oh, if it's one of my many options um, and I feel conscious and capable and in, uh, in control of my options, then that feels like a very different choice, right? Yes. Yes. I, I yeah. like that. And it's, yeah, I mean, the pendulum swinging the other way, completely in the opposite direction, because that never happens in our culture, right? Like, <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're, can be a, can be a bit of an all or nothing society. And, right. but it's, I think it's, I love that you, you strike me as someone who just really gets deeply curious about things. And, and I love that. I just love that about humans. I just, I'm, I'm a fan of curiosity. I think it's mm-hmm. great. <laughs> Likewise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and given that, well, I actually have one more question. Yeah. Because the audience tends to struggle with people pleasing and, um, like you yeah. were saying before, you know, making, putting everyone else's feelings before theirs, learning to, yeah. you know, be nice and those type of things. So how can people, the people listening learn to, really just try and help themselves let go of the guilt for creating boundaries more specifically when it comes to sexual intimacy or just encounters for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, one is to get more comfortable with guilt uh, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, folks who have, you know, who struggle with feeling, you know, guilt for setting boundaries sexually will often feel themselves doing the same thing in other things. You know, you're asked to join a committee, you don't want to join, you feel guilty, you join it. Um, or you get quote unquote guilted into things quite easily. Um, and so to counteract that would be to do small, uh, practices of tolerating guilt. So it's not about the, the question I often get in trainings and such is how do I refuse X, Y, or Z, or how do I say no to, um, you know, A, B, or C without feeling guilty? And that's a a really tall order, especially as someone who's trying to to unlearn some of that guilt reaction. And so the the question would actually be, how do I choose uh, what I want to choose and uh, withstand that guilt? And so I would Mm. uh, look for small ways... Uh, small things that make me feel guilty that I know uh, I need to choose for myself, right? So not going to a backyard barbecue and I would rather just take a nap. And so that makes me feel maybe a a small level of guilt. Uh, That would be a great training ground. So what I would do is um, practice what I would say. Uh, Thank you so much for having, uh, for inviting me. Uh, I really need to take a nap, have a great time. Uh, check myself, uh, check the response for any unnecessary apologies, um, check my response for unnecessarily taking on responsibility that's not mine, um, and check my response for uh, not compensating. Um, so I'm not saying, but don't worry, once I wake up from my nap, I'll come over with a roast chicken. Um, <laughs> not to commit to anything like that out of guilt, exactly, um, and just to do it and go to my bed and try to take a nap. And even if I cannot, because I'm racked with guilt, uh, just to know that that kind of practice of going through the guilt is useful. Mm-hmm. It, it is actually increasing my tolerance for an emotion I don't like. Um, so that's that would be one piece of it. And, and practicing in, on a small scale actually uh, then increases my skills for a, a bigger scale. Um, and then the other piece is to actually talk about it, is to actually say, I'm feeling guilty about setting this boundary yeah. uh, versus um, I'm feeling bad uh, that I'm a terrible person. So trying to talk about it in an accurate way, um, as opposed to keep telling that same story that um, that our worst fears about ourselves are true. Mm-hmm. Yes. What are you making this feeling mean about you versus mm-hmm. it just being a feeling? 
Mm-hmm. I love that. I've, I've said that too before because I've had, I've, I've been asked a similar question. Like, how do I let go of feelings? I mean, it's like, especially the one like around motherhood and, you know, being a working mom, that's one. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know because <laughs> I'm a working mom and sometimes I feel guilty, but here's the difference. And I think this is kind of what you were saying is that I, I, I always, learn and ask myself, okay, is this feeling of guilt pointing to something where I need to change my behavior? Because sometimes Mm. we do make mistakes and Mm -hmm. we feel guilty about them. And it is, it is a learning lesson where maybe we shouldn't make that mistake anymore. Or is it just a feeling like you were saying, and we just Mm -hmm. need to get used to kind of what we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation, just learning how to navigate it. It's like sweating. Mm -hmm. Like I don't prefer it, (laughs) (laughs) especially if I just, you know, blow dry my hair or something, but Mm -hmm. it's just part of life. Like, what if that was just it? And I Mm -hmm. think that we, we put, I mean, guilt is one of those things that I think just has such a bad reputation. And what if it just was a feeling that we learned to navigate? I mean, is that sort of what you were saying? That's how I, I look at it. Yeah. I think of it as sort of a a two-step thing. The first is to go into something that, that, um, brings up that feeling. Mm-hmm. And then the the second is to sit with that feeling. The next time I'm going to enter that thing again, it's going to bring up less of that feeling. Yeah. Right. So the goal is to say no to the barbecue and nap instead, um, without guilt. But that is not how we start. How we start is to feel guilty, withstand the guilt, and then the person actually then learns this guilt does not kill me, and it also did not kill my friendship. Yeah. So a lot of my assumptions were not true. Um, and therefore the next time I say no to a barbecue and choose to nap instead, I'm going to have less amount of guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I can, um, tackle something else that also brings about, about guilt. Yes. Oh, yeah. I love that, Karen. Thank you so much. Everyone needs to go to fluidexchange.org and read everything that Karen has written and watch all of her YouTube videos and, and hire her. I just have loved this conversation. Is there anywhere else you want to send people so they can find out more about, about you? Um, well, I just launched an online emotional intelligence course that they can access uh, through my website. So head back to, to fluidexchange.org and and they can get through. And um, I can also put a special discount code um, with your kick-ass life. Oh, perfect. Um, so that if people want to, to to access that through your podcast. Um, yeah, we'll put it in, in the show notes. Can we make it Y-K-A-L? For, it's easier for people yes, to spell. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody, head on over to the show notes and, and the, the links for that, for her course and the discount code and some of the links that we've mentioned here are there. And thank you so much for giving us your time. I know how valuable your time is and I never take it for granted. I'm always grateful that you choose to spend it with my guests and me and Karen, any last words that you want to say before we say goodbye? Um, just to, to go slow and take one step at a time, which is what I tell myself every morning. I love that. Thank you so much, everyone. And until next time, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye, everybody. 